It was a 40% increase to the Department of Education, the largest single increase for Pell Grants through appropriations, additional investments in many of our key programs. But even if we don't get those final numbers, our job is to continue telling our legislators that we need as big an, as big of an investment as possible and as close to a final number as those that are currently proposed. This is In the Know with ACCT, the voice of community college leaders. I'm Jacob Bray. On this episode of In the Know, ACCT's Vice President of Public Policy, Carrie Warwick-Smith, ACCT's Senior Government Affairs Associate, Jose Miranda, AACC's Senior Vice President for Government Relations, David Bame, and AACC's Associate Vice President for Government Relations, Jim Hermes, discussed the 2022 Community College Priorities. This session was recorded at the 2022 National Legislative Summit and was moderated by William Serrata, President of El Paso Community College in Texas. I am William Serrata, President of El Paso Community College in Texas. Today I'm joined by my colleagues and your federal lobbyists from ACCT and AACC, who will, who will brief you on the top federal legislative priorities for our sector. We hope you will address some of these issues with your members of Congress over the next few days. This session is also intended to leave you more confident and knowledgeable about some of the legislative positions for which we are advocating. We will try to be clear and succinct and to avoid acronyms as much as possible. Please do take notes and also write down questions throughout the presentations so that we can answer them during the Q&A later. ACCT's and AACC's staffers are also happy to answer any questions you have after the session. The priority sheet or green sheet, as it is more popularly known, can be found in your folders. It is also available in our mobile app and on the NLS website. Please take as many as you need for your visits to congressional and executive offices as the green sheets are intended to be left behind for members of Congress and their staff. The green sheet is a summary document of the, of the joint federal legislative priorities set by ACCT and AACC. More information about these priority issues can be found in the background briefing paper that is included in your NLS folder as well as on the app. The backgrounder follows the same order as the issues on the green sheet but provides greater context and background information. Without further ado, I'm pleased to introduce my fellow panelists. Kerry Worksmith, ACCT Vice President of Public Policy. Jose Miranda, ACCT Senior Government Relations Associate. David Bame, AACC Senior Vice President for Government Relations and Policy Analysis. And Jim Hermes, AACC Associate Vice President for Government Relations. I will now turn the session over to our panelists who will review the 2020 community, 2022 community college priorities. We will begin going in order of the priorities listed on the green sheet. Each panelist will highlight key asks from each of the priorities. Let's get started. Uh, good morning, everyone. I'm thrilled, I'm thrilled to join you all today for my first National Legislative Summit. Uh, and thank you um, for the warm uh, introduction and welcome. Uh, I'm also very glad to be joining uh, the stellar government relations team for the community college uh, groups. Uh, so today, and if I could get the slides, we could bring those up, please. 
There we go. All right. So today we're going to start with a bit of a congressional landscape, uh, just so that you uh, all know what you're walking into when you get down to the other end of town. And then we're going to spend the majority of the session on the priorities on the green sheet. Uh, so let's uh, kick off kind of briefly uh, with what's going on in Congress today. The Democrats are working with a number of top priorities at the same time, and none of them are moving particularly quickly. Uh, Dr. Biden did uh, a stellar job of going over uh, the president's top domestic priorities right now, climate, health, and education. Yet, as we know, the Build Back Better Act uh, stalled in late December, and they are still negotiating what, if anything, happens with that package moving forward. But simultaneously, the Senate is also working on a Supreme Court nomination, which will require much of their time and attention, as well as uh, tackling the appropriations process. As I'm sure you all know, fiscal year 22 for the federal government should have uh, had funding ready to go on October 1st, but we have had a series of extensions of that funding, the next of which expires in just 11 days on February 18th. And we're just starting to hear some buzz about a third possible extension through March 11th. So these are, you know, kind of the conversations and the big picture of what's happening uh, on Capitol Hill as you head into your meetings. I'm going to jump into the first item on the green sheet, uh, which are the pri priorities in the Build Back Better Act that are... Uh, important to the community college uh, sector. And I think one of the, the key pieces here as you know, you think about that congressional landscape that I just uh, covered is that these are our top priorities, whether or not they're in the Build Back Better Act or whether they're in some other piece of legislation. And as we've talked about uh, a little bit yesterday, if you were here with us early, uh, and as David will cover a little later in the presentation, sometimes top priorities like short-term Pell get pushed into other uh, pieces of legislation. So I encourage you to focus on the priorities and not the legislative vehicles in your conversation. Uh, so with that, I'm going to go over kind of the, the top five areas that are uh, included in uh, the Build Back Better piece. Uh, first and foremost, a $550 increase to the maximum Pell Award. Uh, that would give us a Pell Award just over $7,000 for the academic year that starts in the fall. And I think we can, you know, we all know what that uh, amount of money means to our students. And Dr. Biden shared an excellent example this morning of, you know, a student who was struggling to buy books. $550 goes a, lot, a long way towards buying your books. Uh, so that, uh, that increase that was passed in the original uh, House Build Back Better Act is one of the top priorities, uh, $550 more for the award. Uh, second, there uh, was a particular tax provision in Build Back Better that would allow uh, the portion of Pell Grants used for non-tuition and fees expenses to no longer be taxable. So that is an important piece as well. David, again, will talk a little bit more about uh, that tax provision and several other tax priorities that we have on the green sheet. Uh, next up, there were two pieces of workforce training 
uh, support that were included in Build Back Better. One would be a new $5 billion community college-led workforce training program. And the other piece would be a reauthorization of funding that expired in 2014 for the Trade Adjustment Assistance Community College and Career Training Program, or TACT. Uh, so those are two important uh, workforce training pieces. And then finally, the Build Back Better Act included $500 million, $500 million for a uh, grant competition for states and colleges to improve college completion rates and provide supports to students on campus to make sure that they are able to uh, retain and graduate. Um, and with that, I'm gonna pass uh, I'm going to pass it down to Jim, who is going to take on uh, Dreamers and Workforce Programs. Thanks very much, Carrie, and uh, it's a pleasure to see all of you here uh, today, um, uh, live and in person. It's uh, it's quite a quite a change, really. Uh, I'm going to talk about something that's been on our green sheet for quite some time now, and that is enacting the Dream Act and supporting Dreamers. Um, it's important, to really, to remember uh, about this a couple of things. One is that. This has been a, you know, uh, on the back burner, I think it's fair to say, uh, because we've had the DACA program in place and that's taken the heat off of Congress really in a, in a substantial way to do something in this area. Of course, there's a lot of people in Congress that wanna get this done. Um, but the litigation that's now proceeding its way through the courts challenging DACA that has been successful so far and may wind up back in the Supreme Court uh, may in fact put this issue back on the front burner. Of course, this issue has always been on our front burner because no matter what happens with DACA in the courts, the only way to establish a path to citizenship for DREAMers is through legislation such as the DREAM Act. So we're sending you up there again to talk about this issue and the continued importance of the DREAM Act in passing the act. They've tried a few times to get something similar into the reconciliation bill that Kerry was just talking about without any success. And of course, that bill hasn't passed yet in any case. So again, uh, the message to Congress as you go up there is to reiterate your continued support as we have supported this bill since it was first introduced in 2001. And then the next item on the green sheet and the next slide here is uh, authorizing a community college-led job training program. Carrie just talked to you about uh, some of the things that are in the Build Back Better Act that we are still very hopeful of achieving at some point because that is one way of authorizing such a program that we view as a successor of sorts to the TAC program, which many, if probably most of you, had experience with in terms of uh, uh, you know, implementing a grant through that program. And so you know and your job today is to, to tell Congress again about the successes you had with that program uh, and the fact that you want another similarly scaled community college-led job training program. We do have a program right now called the Strengthening Community College Training Grants Program. That is one possible avenue towards building upon and authorizing such a program. But again, as Kerry mentioned, don't worry so much about the vehicle but rather on the concept of we need something in place to support your institutions in your workforce education missions in a large scale uh, fashion. Of course, the best way to do it from our perspective is not only an authorization, but some big dollars to come with it. And therefore, you know, what we see in Build Back Better is still a focus of ours. 
Uh, but we want to get this done no matter how Congress uh, chooses to do it. And with that, I'll take it uh, to the next uh, item on our sheet, um, which uh, David will talk to you about. Thank you, Jim. And hello, everyone. Thank you for being here. As Carrie mentioned, we have a government funding extension through February 18th. There's talks about going further into March now, which the House is expected to start taking up this week. In an ideal world, we should be talking about FY23 instead of FY22, but instead we're still here. But the silver lining is that you're here at the perfect place because if the House is going to start considering a potential CR this week or next week, when you meet with your offices this, this week, later during NLS, it's important for you to emphasize that a continuing resolution and extension of fiscal year 2021 funding is not enough. Our students are losing a lot of opportunities when we continue to disinvest, and that is really what a continuing resolution is. It's a disinvestment in our students' education and our institutional resources. So with that, I'm gonna talk about a little couple item, a couple of items that are in our green sheet, and just to put some level setting, in terms of FY22, the House passed the Labor HHS appropriation bill last summer, and Senate Democrats introduced their version last fall as well. Now, these were completely partisan bills, so we're not going to see these are the final numbers, and typically, when the Senate has a proposal, the House has a proposal, the end product ends up being in the middle, but because these two are partisan resolutions, we know that whatever the final product will be is likely gonna be lower than these numbers. And these were historical numbers in these FY22 proposals. It was a 40% increase to the Department of Education, the largest single increase for Pell Grants through appropriations, additional investments in many of our key programs. But even if we don't get those final numbers, our job is to continue telling our legislators that we need as big, an, as big of an investment as possible and as close to a final number as those that are currently proposed. So with that in mind, I'll start with the student support and access programs that the federal government has. First and foremost is Pell Grant, and it's always Pell Grant. I just mentioned the FY22 proposals right now include a $400 increase. That's the single largest increase in a appropriations bill, at least over the last decade. We're very supportive of doubling the Pell Grant, but we know that that's not going to happen in one appropriation year. But we want to get as close as possible to that. So getting a final number close to 400 or at 400 would be monumental. But in addition to Pell Grants, we know that our students receive additional funding and additional support through the Supplemental Educational Opportunity Grant, through Federal Work Study, which I think we, many of us have talked about over the past couple of days, TRIO, Gear Up, and C Campus, particularly in our community colleges. So we wanna ensure that these programs receive the proper investment that they need. But it's not just our students that need help. It's also our institution. It's also our institution's ability to serve our students. So providing investments to our institutional support programs Title III-A, the strengthening institution programs, is particularly of high importance for us because we know many of our institutions receive these grants and we wanna ensure that there's funding for it. The FY22 house proposal nearly doubled that program and we wanna ensure that there's a robust investment there as well. And of course, it's also important for many of our institutions who are MSIs, HSIs, TCCUs to receive the proper investment because we know these are students that need additional support. On the other front, I think Jim started to touch on this as well, but we want to ensure that on the non-credit side, our institutions are properly equipped. And the First Lady spoke about the infrastructure investment bill 
She spoke about all the potential job creation that is going to result as a result of the American Recovery Act. But we know that that job creation also leads to a job demand, and job demand leads to a skills demand. And our institutions are primed to provide this, but only if the government can provide us with the resources to continue that workforce investment, whether it's through CTE, adult ed, um, or the Strengthening Community College Training Grants. Um, and with that, I will turn it over to David. Uh, good, good morning, everyone. Um, it's uh, great to see so many people here. I have a 90-year-old mother in, in Pittsburgh, and I think when I'm done with this session, I always try to call her once a day. I'm going to say, Mom, I followed the First Lady this morning. Just another day at the office, so, you know. Really special that Dr. Biden is in a position to do that for, for all of us. But you're all here, so you obviously appreciate the value of coming to DC and making these visits. But I do want to reiterate our thanks um, to you for doing that and the collective importance of everybody being here. When you talk to Hill staff in a run-up to this meeting, invariably they'll say, oh yeah, we know that the community colleges have the big, what they call fly-in in Washington this time of year. And so there really is a sense that, you know, the community colleges are going to be out in mass at this time. So it's really just very great for you to be participating. We know that many of you are not going to be able to have face-to-face -face meetings. We don't have face-to-face -face meetings uh, with, with Hill staff ourselves. So uh, we appreciate your flexibility and your being willing to accommodate that. Um, I'm going to talk about a couple of higher education um, issues uh, before I talk about some a tax item. Uh, for those of you who are particularly interested in this, know that there will be a follow-up session moderated by Dr. Ava Parker um, from Palm Beach State uh, College um, this afternoon at 2.30 if you want to get into the nitty-gritty on this. So the first item on the uh, priority sheet relating to the Higher Education Act is um, what we're calling uh, making community college universally available here. But really what it is is America's college promise. And as you just heard from Dr. Biden, and as you're all aware anyway, that legislation was not included in the Build Back Better Act, even as it was passed by the House of Representatives. And essentially, that it happened for a lot of reasons, but the biggest reason was that it was just very, very expensive. And there was a, they had to have the size of the bill before they could bring it um, to the House floor. At the time, they were thinking they would get the couple Democratic votes in the Senate that you're all aware of that they ultimately did not get, but that was the thinking behind that. But nevertheless, it's, it's worth mentioning and worth you mentioning as you speak with offices about the importance of making community college free and making higher education universal by making community college free. It's just a tremendously important concept. We think it's important for the country's well-being. We know it would help our, our institutions. But I think just as importantly, if not more so, is the idea that Passing America's College Promise means every American assumes that they're going to be going to college, just like we all assumed when we were growing up that we would be going to high school and it would be as automatic as that. So that's really what's behind the vision of America's College Promise. We're not sure about what the vehicle for that's going to be at this point. We do know that the administration remains committed to this concept and to working um, with us on it. So as you just heard from the First Lady, we're certainly not giving up you know, on the, the, um, the hope that we will see this enacted into law. It's a very complicated program. We work with some of you on this, but the bottom line is that we think that this is a, would represent a very big step forward for the country through making higher education 
available to everybody. And so we do think it's important to keep the conversation alive on, on that. And then one other thing, I know you all get a lot of numbers thrown at you at these meetings and it's hard to keep them all straight in your head, but <clears throat> one number that I think is very relevant for understanding the commitment that was made by the administration and by the, um, the House Education and Labor Committee in voting for this is that the bill when fully implemented, that is the America's College Promise Program, it would have provided $10 billion a year, okay? $10 billion a year. And you might say, what's $10 billion except $9 billion, more than $1 billion, because it's all so much money, you can't even think about it or get your arms around it. But in fact, that $10 billion is about, compares to $16 billion that our students pay collectively in tuition every year, okay? So in other words, the federal government was poised to provide more than half of every dollar, about 60% of every dollar that every student pays in tuition every year. So we are talking about a colossal amount of money as well as the vision. So just keep that in mind as you, as you uh, make mention of this in your congressional context. <clears throat> and then the other thing that was aligned with the America's College Promise that Kerry mentioned, it was in the Build Back Better Act, is that there is a important program, or was, that would have provided $500 million over five years to help college completion. It's not as much money as was originally proposed and is what we thought we were gonna get if, if we did get a bill, but the concept of the federal government working directly with our institutions to enhance student success and helping us have the resources that we know are considerable to, to get students across that finish line with all the intensive services that students need, that's really important. So if the state got one of these promise grants, they were gonna be eligible to apply for these success grants. And again, we think it's an important role for the federal government to play. So those are a couple of, of major Higher Education Act issues that we're, um, that we're, uh, we've set as priorities and ask you to communicate. And then this um, next area is the Pell Grants in short-term programs and we had remarkable success. We like to say that it was Carrie's welcome aboard um, uh, action by the House of Representatives because we've been working on it for years to get this done. And the week that she took the job, we got short-term Pell um, eligibility created. So thank you. You, you, know, you can retire now in good graces. Um, but, um, but this is just a huge deal for community colleges. And without going into the specifics of it, um, I would say maybe two things, political things. One, uh, in, in all truth, we weren't necessarily expecting this to happen. I think it's fair to say, colleagues, but uh, through some tenacious efforts by people on the Hill, and I would single out Senator Tim Kaine. I know we have some, uh, some Virginians here. Um, uh, Rob Portman from Ohio was also uh, stalwart in this over a person. Okay, do I hear any from Pennsylvania? No, um, so at any rate, um, so, so, so we, they really helped get this, it was, most of the work was done in the Senate, but it ended up getting put into this House um, Competes Act and with some other legislation. But um, so, so in talking about this, and we really hope you'll all talk about it, I think in anybody that you speak with, talk about the importance of getting this House language put into final law this year. This is something that is realistic. We're within striking distance on it. It's in House passed legislation. The Senate has to agree to it, and then it has to be passed as a conference bill uh, under the congressional procedures. But this is a really big policy step forward. I, I see a lot of faces in the room. I know who've worked on this for many, many months. 
it's not been easy politically. We won't take time to go into why this morning, but um, all of you should go into offices and, and thank House members for, for the measure that was and the votes that were taken on Friday for this. It doesn't matter even if they voted for it, just thank them for it anyway, you know, let them figure out if they didn't vote for the amendment. Um, so, and, and it was, and let me say it was, it was bipartisan. It wasn't overwhelmingly bipartisan, but there were, I believe 25, was it, um, Republican votes for the, for the measure. So in, these, in this day and age, that's really good, you know, and there were some Democratic defections the other way too. So, so just thank them for that and urge them to um, get into, uh, signed into law. And then finally, before we um, open up to questions, just a couple of tax issues, and Carrie mentioned this in passing, that um, included in the Build Back Better, something else that we did, and we were very pleased with it because it was basically just the community colleges alone advocating, but we were able to, get, to have the Pell Grant made non-taxable and having the American Opportunity Tax Credit uh, language changed um, to make it much, much more advantageous for community colleges. Real quick, to us it makes no sense to have a Pell Grant given to a financially needy student by definition taxed. So the government gives with one hand what it takes away with the other. It just doesn't make any sense. So that's a reason to make Pell Grant non-taxable. And then the other thing is that the way that the formula works and at the risk of getting a little bit complicated, but basically a student's Pell Grant is subtracted from their tuition and fees, their basic eligibility for this American Opportunity Tax Credit, which is a $2,500 tax credit. So if a student pays $5,000 in tuition and fees and required books, or $6,000, and they get a $6,000 Pell Grant, they get zero a AOTC. These are needy students getting zero of a tax credit. And then a, wealthy, a wealthier student whose parents earn $160,000 a year can get the $2,500. And we just think that that's crazy. And so this was in the Build Back Better, and we're hopeful to get this addressed later in this Congress. And then finally, we are um, trying to get the, um, the language and the way that the lifetime learning tax credit is calculated. That mostly goes to our non-credit students. They only get 20% of their covered expenses right now, and we're trying to get that bumped up to 100%. Because the way this credit work, uh, lifetime learning credit works is that if you pay a bigger tuition, mostly grad students, you get the full $2,000. You get 20% of up to $10,000. If you're a community college student paying $600 for a non-credit program, you get, you get $120. And it just doesn't seem, that, again, that doesn't seem equitable to us. So I know it's a lot of priorities, but um, that's what we're working on and asking you to help us with. And Carrie's gonna moderate questions. Thank you, David, Jim, and Jose. Uh, I know we threw a lot at you. Uh, we have about 15 minutes for questions, so if I could ask folks to head to the two microphones in the center of the room. Uh, we'll do just as we did uh, for the first session. We'll alternate between the front and the back microphone until about 10.30, and then staff is also happy to continue conversations in the hallway afterwards. So, please. All right, thank you. Um, I'm curious if anybody is talking about, maybe it was all the Secret Service agents, but I'm thinking about strategic defense of our country. You know, the U.S. is the top four spender in education with um, OECD countries. We're number one in defense spending. So, I feel like maybe the conversation that's happening behind closed doors with our electeds is more around value. I, I've never seen 
conversations about value with defense spending budgets and things like that. So I guess I'm wondering, how do we, how do we frame our messaging in a way that talks about the defense of the nation in terms of education, but also, I mean, just the proportions are just so different. And so I wonder if anybody's framing this in terms of strategic defense and, and the like and the value that education provides. Am I way off yeah. left field here? I'm I was going to say, is anyone already doing that? I'm not sure that I have heard it that way, but we can certainly have a discussion about whether we think it would be helpful. Well, the one thing I'll add to that is, and I've heard this when I was a congressional staffer, is a prepared nation has a prepared workforce, and that's where we come into play. We have an educated citizenry with the skills that are needed for our nation to continue moving forward as the, first of the, as the top country in, in the world. So if that's one thing that you are not already using, maybe it's something worth pursuing. And that's where we have to focus is, our role isn't in manufacturing arms or anything like that, but it's ensuring that the companies that do this, that ensuring that the skills that are needed for 21st century defense and cybersecurity and so on, these are starting at our institutions. And finally, I'm just going to say that we do, in the appropriations process that Jose talked about, we do emphasize the need for domestic investments um, and putting a priority on those domestic investments um, it, when it becomes head-to-head -head with the security investments. And when we, we don't usually take a position, we don't take positions against it per se, defense expenditures, but we do say that the maximum amount of money should be provided for these domestic uh, programs, which does have a, a direct impact on the amount of funds available for education and job training. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and if I could ask everyone to introduce themselves before you say yeah. your question, that would be great. Uh, back microphone, please. Hi, Dr. Amy Adams from Marion Technical College in Ohio. So it's great to hear that we're pushing to increase the Pell Grant, but we still have the overwhelming issue that we don't have enough students and families completing the FAFSA. And I know that there's been a lot of conversation about making it easier and simplifying it and reducing the questions. But my idea that I would like to push forward is that if we could consider making it a value um, for more than one year at a time, it would be very helpful for our families so that when we actually get them through the process, we could give them a complete college cost for a two-year degree if it was, you know, if we could make it for two years versus every year having to go through the process. And for those of you who've ever gotten a student to go through it, particularly through verification, so many times we can't get them through it, or if we do, it's so discouraging that we can't get them to do it a second year. Um, thank you for that. They're teasing me because they know in my last job I was the FAFSA lady, so they think I planted that question. <laughs> uh, uh, so I, there's, there's some general good news on the FAFSA front in terms of simplifying the form in that Congress did pass uh, two partner pieces of legislation in December 19 and December 20 to simplify the FAFSA. The first one was called the FAFSA Act. The second one was called the FAFSA Simplification Act. Um, happy to talk uh, after the session about anyone who wants to dive into those details. Um, I think the not as great news is that if we're lucky and the government does its implementation job well at federal student aid, 
uh, those changes will take place for, fiscal, or for academic year 24-25, so the FAFSA that is not available until next year. Uh, so, that, so we still have a little bit of waiting to do there. Um, the other part is that your suggestion about only having to do it once uh, is that that was not included in that legislation. So that's something that um, you know, continues to be part of the discussion, mm -hmm. but was not included in, in the passage of those laws. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you again for um, your work uh, up here at the Capitol. Um, so I, I, it, I, I'm looking at all these different things. I, it feels like we are getting to a point where we'll get to universal uh, higher education through all these different programs that are acronyms, uh, you know, through STEP, trade assistance, and a variety of different things. So it feels like there's a variety of different agencies, programs, and so forth that the vast majority of people will be able to qualify for in some way or other, which will allow them to get free college education. I feel like that just makes a huge administrative cost as opposed to creating a centralized system where just community college is free for everyone for to attend, develop our workforces and so forth. So is there an argument to be made that with all these different programs, administrative, uh, that require administration, that just simply having a universal, just free community college singular program would make that just better and more cost effective? That's just a really good point. I don't know that we've emphasized it quite that much in that fashion, but what we have said is that the message of there being free community college, as I was describing earlier, we believe would be very powerful. And one of the things that we encountered in advocating for this proposal was the opposition of the four-year institutions. I wouldn't say it was the, 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 the primary reason why we didn't ultimately get it, because it was, as I mentioned, cost most, uh, mostly or, or more so, but it didn't help that we had our, our, our colleagues in the other sectors actively working against us on this. And, and we thought that it was very short-sighted of them because we truly believe based on the evidence of the state level promise programs, I know a lot of people here from some of the states is that, that it would have actually resulted in more students going to four-year institutions ultimately because they would have gone to our colleges where they weren't gonna go to any college and then transferred on in, in some numbers. So that's just a little bit of political dynamics, but I think your point is really well taken. I mean, definitely the, the in addition to the fact that the average tuition is $3,800 tuition and fees across the country that this would have eliminated for everybody was just the, the messaging aspect and administrative aspect of it. Absolutely. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Jen Wen. I am a student government secretary at Tacoma Community College. <laughs> Um, my question is for lower income students. I know quite a lot of students are kicked out of some social security service such as food stamps and disabled um, disabilities um, checks because of their Pell Grants account at that income tax. Um, is there any initiative to help those students get back those um, helps that they were kicked out of once they enroll for school and receive um, the grants? Could you repeat the last part of the question, please? Uh, I was just wondering if there's any help that, um, or initiatives that helps those lower income students can get back on receiving helps 
because once they enroll in the grants and before it counted income tax, they were no longer able to receive EB food stamps and um, food providing services or dis, um, disability checks. Um, you know, I think generally uh, the community college agenda is adding more uh, priorities around basic needs supports. Um, would any of my colleagues want to add some details? Oh, Jose. Yeah, Jose. Yeah, so there's a couple of things there. One is we know there's a lot of programs out there that are meant to support students, especially as we know when it comes to food insecurity, housing insecurity, mental health, especially as a result of the pandemic, it's been exacerbated. We know there's a lot of federal resources out there. We know they're not as easily accessible to our students. So one of the good things that happened as a result of the pandemic, one of the actions that Congress took is that it made, so for example, with SNAP, students who are Pell, Pell recipients became automatically eligible for SNAP. Now that's something that is only on a temporary basis as a result of the pandemic. It's something we would love to see in permanence and something we'll be talking about but there's also legislation out there such as the BASIC Act, which now Vice President Harris, then, um, then Senator Harris, was the lead in the Senate, now Senator Padilla leads as well, and in the House is uh, Congresswoman Torres. This is a grant program that will allow our institutions to provide these uh, general supportive services for students, whether it's housing, whether it's um, food uh, or other forms of assistance, but we're trying to find ways also in how do we streamline that process? How do we make it easier for our students to tap into, the, to one, be aware that their resources are out there, whether it's uh, SNAP or housing assistance or broadband assistance. How do we make them aware, first and foremost, that that's there? And then two, how can we, we know some of us, we have that information whether through FAFSA, right? If you're a Pell recipient, we know they're low income, we know they have these needs. How can we utilize that information and make it easier for them to tap into these other federal programs? This is still an ongoing conversation and an ongoing effort, but as a result of the pandemic, there has been some progress in some areas, such as with an example I gave with SNAP. Okay, thank you very much. Hi, uh, Thomas Witt, uh, Heartland Community College in Illinois. Um, Regarding the, uh, the funding of a new community college-led uh, job training pro or program that links training to jobs, uh, if, this would, if this is to be a successor to TACT, uh, would you recommend pushing this as not necessarily linked to trade, but just link it to either emerging jobs or jobs that need to be filled? Would there be, would there be a particular uh, point to push in this? Yeah, no, I mean, well, what we're trying to avoid in talking about this is the fact that there are about three or four different ways this is kind, that this could happen, essentially, and we didn't want to get bogged down in, as Carrie mentioned on her, one of her initial slides, the vehicle for that. You mentioned, you know, TACT, of course, is a creature of the Trade Adjustment Assistance Act and therefore does have that tie to trade impacted workers when we had tech you know the dol made it the program as broad as possible so it really it definitely extended well beyond that but it still had that tie we're not necessarily talking about anything in that and we would assume if we had a, you know one of the things that is possible and was in build back better and it, uh, also just in an authorization sense was in the competes act that the house just passed is a reauthorization of the tax program 
we would assume that if that is the way that this was going to happen, this community college-led job training program, that it would be made as broad as possible again. So we're not really talking about in, any, in terms of any particular kind of worker. Certainly across the board, we are talking about preparing people for high-skill, high-demand uh, occupations. But some of that, what you're talking about, will depend on some extent on what, how exactly uh, this, this would happen. But I think really, as I mentioned before, the message for you all is you are prepared to do this in a very large scale way, just as you have done it very successfully before, and then Congress needs to put it into place so it can grow from here. If, okay, I, can, if I can add one quick thing to just to note is, we do have, uh, we are aware that we don't want limitations that have, we've seen tact, we've seen how it worked, we've seen what could have been improved. And wow, almost two years now, you know, we, we worked with the Committee on Ed and Labor to provide feedback, to draft a new program. That's what we unofficially called it a tact successor. And if you look in Build Back Better, there is tact funding, but there's also a $4.9 billion grant that isn't tied to a, uh, trade assistance. It's, it's tied to community college partnerships with industry for in-demand jobs at the local community. So to your point, yeah, we have seen that. Congress is aware of that. We don't want to say no to any proposal or any vehicle, but we do have various options and various areas where we've worked with Congress to try to improve and streamline it for our institutions. Thank you for listening to this episode of In the Know. If you have questions about our legislative priorities, feel free to get in touch with the ACCT public policy team by emailing publicpolicy at acct.org. We'll see you next week.